If you have a copy of God's Word this morning, we will be in Ecclesiastes 6, beginning in verse 10, and going to all of chapter 7. Now, as you're turning to Ecclesiastes 6, verse 10, uh, it's a long chapter that we're going to go through, and I don't want to rush through Scripture, but this is a portion of Ecclesiastes that's just like last week. There's a lot of Proverbs and, and their common sense wisdom, and I just, it's all good, and we're going to go through it and sit in God's Word, but also, this could be like a six-week series, I feel like, and it could just drag out, so we're going to just push through the chapter and uh, hear God's wisdom to us, found in Ecclesiastes, beginning in chapter uh, 6, verse 10, and through 7. Hear now the reading of God's Word. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity, and what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God, who can make straight what he has made crooked. In the day of prosperity, be joyful, and in the day of adversity, consider, God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his wickedness, or in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest your 
heart, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that this world is not the way that it's supposed to be, and we mourn that, but thank you that you have given us your word to give us wisdom in how to live in it, that we may actually be able to live a life that is recognizing your blessings, that a life is repentant, that a life that is not occupied with things that occupy the world, but is pointed towards something much deeper and truer and of much more eternal significance. And that is that while this world is frustrating and full of wickedness and evil and sin, it is not the final say of this world or of us, your created image bearers. Give us wisdom as we examine wisdom this day. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, amen. That is the longest passage of scripture I have ever read before preaching. Um, we come now to this part of Ecclesiastes where we've transitioned. You know, last week we were talking about the obsession over possessions and status, and verses 10 through 12 of chapter 6 are kind of the end transition. And that the point is, if we can't, you know, chapters 3 through 6 are pretty much dealing with all these things that are frustrating, right? We, we, we've realized that our God is sovereign over our times and our seasons, but they can be frustrated times and seasons. God is sovereign over our work, but some of us either are lazy and don't want to do the work that God's given us, or we obsess about it and make an idol out of it. We see that God has been sovereign over both justice and righting wrongs, but that injustice is a reality of a fallen world. So the preacher sums up all of that, the, the affliction of living life under the sun in these verses. And he echoes the very first chapter, and interestingly enough, the very first chapter in the same verse number, chapter 1, verse 10, the preacher says this, is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new. It has been already in the ages before us. That's what those verses are saying when he says that uh, whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. This is a beautiful way of saying that God is sovereign, and that God has known all things. It brings to mind Isaiah 46.10, where God says, I am God, and there is none like me declaring the end from the beginning 
and from ancient times, things not yet done. All of our little schemes and plans and struggles and sorrows and joys have already been named from the very beginning of time. So there's no use in kind of arguing our case with God. That's the, the whole point of Job is this constant arguing before God uh, and this long, prolonged thing of all of his struggles. And then God shows up and says, where were you when I put the foundations of the world in place? Who are you to argue back to me? What would we get out of such a fight with just spitting out words? So if the world is so full of all these things, both good and bad, yet it always is leaving us empty, the question he drives home in verse 12 is, can we live a good life in this world? Who knows what is good for a man while he lives the few days of his vain life? Is there any advantage in wisdom right here and now, or do we give up to despair? The preacher is going to say, there actually is. It's good to be wise. It's better to be wise than a fool. And so the preacher takes us to a school of wisdom, and he wants to, us to learn certain lessons that will help us navigate this life, but then ultimately he's going to steer us like he always does to not making even that the fullness of what it's going to be. We, we, our wisdom in this world will be limited, but it doesn't mean we don't use our brains. It doesn't mean we don't use wisdom from God's word. And it also points to another question. There's, there's two. Can we have wisdom in this life? And what is ultimately most important? So the preacher takes us to his school of wisdom, and the first teacher is probably going to surprise you. So look at verse seven, or chapter 7 and verse 1. A good name is better than precious ointment. We can all agree that this kind of good wisdom sound, you know, we, we get it. A good name, a good reputation is something that is absolutely important. And he's luring us in because we're supposed to nod our heads like, well, of course, I want to have a good name. I want to be respected in my community. Here comes the Ecclesiastes gut punch, the second part of verse one. And the day of death is better than the day of birth. How is dying better than being born? What the preacher is about to argue is that death is actually an evangelist with an important message for the living. Think about it this way. When a new baby is born, everyone around the baby is filled with hope and joy. We ooh and we ah. We smell because all babies smell so good, and you rock, and you are just, if you're, you know, hold, it doesn't have to even be your child, but as you hold the child, you just think about all the things they may become. And you may even pray it over them. You're going to be an astronaut. You're going to be a great parent. You're going to be a preacher, a missionary. I pray that you're going to become all these things. We are full of potential, but we don't know anything about these little people, right? One of the, the struggles of being a parent is watching these children develop and you start realizing they have personalities of their own. They have, they have things that God's gifted them with that are their own. And, and maybe it's not going to meet your same hopes and expectations. The best you can say about them when they're still little is, oh, they look like so-and-so. Or, you know, as they get older, oh, they have so-and-so's temper. They have Uncle Bob's temper or something like that. But we don't know much about them. 
But let's just picture a little baby born. Her name is Jane. And her parents ooh and ah over her, and they've got all these hopes and dreams for her. Fast forward now 86 years. And baby Jane has lived a full life. And we are at baby Jane's, now just Jane's, funeral. People hear about it, and they say, oh, she died. How sad. She had an excellent garden. Or the eulogies come up, and a, a granddaughter comes up and just says, I enjoyed walks on the beach with grandma, or I you know, knew that she really loved her knitting circle. But maybe we realize that there's not much depth to the relationship. There's not much things that we can say about Jane. Or if it's not Jane, maybe it's Henry. He loved a good round of golf, and that's the best somebody can muster to say at his funeral. Death teaches us much more than life can of the content and character of someone's life. What is it that made them? What are they remembered for as they're approaching death or they have their funeral? I was thinking about this with um, the beginning of Chariots of Fire when they, they're starting off with, with the eulogy and talking about the, the, the kind of character of um, Eric Lindell and, and you know, who he was as a man. But the, the, the beauty of the, of the movie is it kind of opens and ends with those scenes of, of his funeral. And a message, the whole message of the, the movie and the point isn't so much his great speed and his uh, you know, prowess and these gifts from God. It was the fact that he recognized that his speed was a gift from God. He struggled with you know, kind of glorying in himself and what people would say about him for being this world-renowned Olympic athlete. But he was more concerned about the mission field. And he struggles in this wonderful scene you know, between him and his sister about, you know, he, he's debating about going back to China to be a missionary and his sister's encouraging him but to, to go and do that and chiding him and kind of scolding him for wanting to run the Olympics. But he says, you know, when I run, I feel God's pleasure in my running. And it's a good thing for that storyline. But it doesn't cover what actually led to Lindell's death. And that was a huge sacrifice of going to China, being a missionary, serving amongst the people for years until the communist revolution where he is interred at a camp. He had the opportunity to come home and he didn't take it. And he died from sickness and the poor uh, you know, healthcare within the, the, the camp. And people, when they pan back out to the funeral, which they don't cover any of that part of his life, the funeral is still packed, which was true. It was packed, though, not because of just being a world-famous Olympic athlete, but because of the content of his character, the wisdom, what it said about him as a man that sacrificed so much for God's glory. So most of us are probably not going to uh, be missionaries in that context or have a, a, an opportunity to do that, and I'm not saying we are supposed to be an Eric Lindell or, you know, do great work so that people will mourn over us, but the preacher is saying that at our death, we will learn, um, we will want to have people say, what was the content of that person's character? If at my death people said he loved Jesus, his wife, his kids, and people, I would think that is a good life. Or to hear my Savior say, well done, good and faithful servant. That is the goal of the Christian life, is to to come into heaven, into God's presence, and have Jesus say that to us. 
But this isn't just about uh, what people will be saying at our funerals, but that a funeral can drive eternity into our hearts and mind. That's why the preacher says that houses of mourning are preferred to houses of uh, feasting. And he's not being a bummer. He's not morbid. It's that when presented with the vanity of life and all of its fleetingness, the fool says, I'm going to mask my fears, my sorrows, my joys, all these things, my frustrations with drink and merriment. I know I'm going to die, so I'm just going to you know, live life to the fullest, but I'm going to mask facing the fact of my death. If I keep pretending it's not going to happen, you know, I can keep pushing it out of my mind. I don't have to deal with ultimate things. The wise person says, death is coming for me someday, so how can I live in such a manner that I die well? What does that look like? Death humbles our desires for excess. It's said that in ancient Rome, highly successful generals were awarded a triumph, which was a a magnificent ceremony that uh, would hold them in honor of all their mighty victories. Um, It was the pinnacle of a general's life, and it was often uh, a a time for people to start uh, celebrating the soldiers, the general's sacrifices, everything that he's done, and honor him in a really, really special way. It was a glorious ceremony, but the general might start considering himself superior to every other Roman citizen. To keep his ego in check, the Romans came up with a pretty brilliant idea. While the general would march in a chariot while everyone is praising him and shouting, you know, well done and throwing things at him probably, a slave was sitting behind him and would at certain points whisper in his ear something along the lines of memento mori. That's Latin for remember that you die. It's to remind him that all of that fame and honor was temporary and that death was inevitable, even for those who are at the height of their power and career. We saw that even last week, right, with the man that builds up wealth, but he's not blessed with the, the, the joy of enjoying it. God either kills him or there's an illness or something happens, and that, that's taken away from him. Make it happen like that. This thought became wildly popular in Stoicism and was expressed really well in the emperor-slash-philosopher Marcus Aurelius's meditations. He wrote, You could leave life right now. Let that determine what you do, say, and think. That's the preacher's message with death. It is certain for an emperor, so it's going to be certain for not emperors, for paupers and princes and, and middle management and everybody else. So how do we live in light of that? One final point about how death is our great teacher, and that comes through sorrow. Look at verse 3. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. Right? The world we saw last week and throughout the previous chapter wants us to put happiness at the forefront of our existence. That's what our culture wants, too. We are taught that we need to do whatever makes us happy. We need to live our truth, even if it is destructive, even if it's selfish, even if it's dangerous to myself or other people's, as long as I am happy, then I don't care what other people think of me or need of me. I just need to live my truth, and happiness is the pinnacle of all that. I need to avoid sadness. I need to avoid pain or sorrow. I need to live a fulfilled life where there's no struggle, no sorrow. 
This is captured really well in a children's movie that is definitely one of my favorites. I think I've said that a couple of times, but this one is up there. It's from uh, Pixar's Inside Out, which is dealing with uh, a 12-year-old's inner emotions as her family uproots their entire life in Minnesota and moves to San Francisco. Culture shock. But in it, the main emotion is joy, and she's joyful, and she just wants Riley, her little 12-year-old, to be happy all the time, because if you're happy all the time, it means you're living a good life. Her arch nemesis and drag is Sadness, who she doesn't even know what she's doing around with Riley because whenever Sadness shows up, Riley cries, Riley's sad, Riley's depressed. They get into a whole issue with uh, joy and sadness you know, being kicked out of basically Riley's brain and they're trying to get back to Riley to help her feel better. And Joy just every, knows she needs to get back there so Riley can just be happy even though what we see is Riley struggling with relationships with her parents, the new school, missing friends from Minnesota. She's struggling and her emotions are going haywire. And in the, the kind of end climax of the scene, Joy realizes sadness is important for Riley. Sadness helps Riley cry and feel sorrow. And in those moments of sorrow, that's when Joy gets to show up and, and give her deep comfort. But we need, she, Riley needed sadness to experience the depths of joy. And so as they get everything back together in Riley's brain and she comes home uh, to her parents, she cries and she lets out all these emotions. Sadness takes over and Riley is so upset and her parents hug her and tell her they're sad too, that they miss the lake in Minnesota, that things are weird in San Francisco, as you could imagine. And then Joy gets to come in and it reunites the family. That's a long way of saying that we do experience sorrow in this life and to ignore it is actually ignoring emotions that the Bible says are for our good. And think about the Beatitudes that Jesus teaches us. Do you remember how these go? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. These are not happy-go-lucky people all the time who never had to struggle. But Jesus says they're blessed. Why? Because going through life's trials faithfully doesn't harden us. It doesn't break us. It makes us go deeper into grace, deeper into mercy, empathy, and joy. A time of sorrows makes me look at the world as a gift as God's gifts so that I know the depth and beauty of laughter or a hug from my kids or a kiss of, from my wife because I've experienced sorrow. And I don't take any of those moments for granted. But what, but what if I've never struggled? I probably would, uh, I wouldn't have realized how lost I am. I wouldn't realize how important a hug or a kiss could be because I never had anything to miss. So death is a teacher then not to be embraced, or not to be feared, but to be embraced. The preacher wants us to live in the reality of our death. Keep in mind, memento mori, you will die, whether you're the emperor or a slave. But he also wants us uh, to not just live in the reality of our death. We're not supposed to be morbid or depressed. It's supposed to give us a life filled with purpose and joy. So we have to then learn what wisdom is, and we're going to move quickly through this. But in chapter 7, verses 7 through 14, there are basically four things that we can do in this life. We can either choose a way to live wisely or we can escape. He lays out a series of proverbs that show that. And they are, 
a proverb about corruption, impatience, anger, and nostalgia. And in corruption is just in verse 7. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness. Lord Acton's famous line, if you know who that is, uh, you'll definitely know the line or the quote, power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Wisdom is not tyrannical. The warning here is not for those that are suffering under corruption. It's for those who are tempted to become corrupt. Derek Kidner pointed out that the appeal is basically have some self-respect. Who wants to look like a fool or a villain? Which is exactly what happens to those in authority who become corrupt. You can think of politicians who at once were at the height of their power only to discover that they you know, took a bribe to help out a councilman's chair or took some money to help you know, close down a section, of, uh, uh, for a section of the city to help with business for somebody. But corruption makes them look like a fool and it ends up hurting others. And it is unwise. It will drive us into madness and corrupt our hearts. The second is impatience. Struggle produces character. And this is true at all phases of life. And it kind of needs to be celebrated more. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. You know, the a hard day's work is, you know, good for your soul. You see what you've accomplished. I remember I played JV football. We won one game in two years. We were not good. In fact, we were terrible. But it taught me to stick with something. I still enjoyed playing, even though I did not really enjoy losing. Or think about a marriage that you know, inevitably goes through a struggle of a husband and wife learning and digging into fighting for their marriage instead of just letting culture dictate that, again, it's hard, it's unpleasant, choose just your happiness. Get rid of the thing that's making you unhappy, the other spouse. Patience is a virtue then, and something that will help make our lives better, more enjoyable, and is a wisdom that God is telling us to value. Anger is the next one. Like impatience before, we need self-control in this life. And anger is an escape from actually addressing the problem that you face, right? You can't keep it together with somebody. The easy way to deal with the problem is just to shout at them, get everything off your chest. You know, it'll, it'll make you feel better for a moment until you calm down and then go back and think, man, I really said some nasty things. I really cut that person with my words and it, it didn't provide the satisfaction that I thought it would. The preacher says anger lodges in the heart's of fools. Again, kind of like with corruption, it corrupts our hearts. It is cathartic in the moment, but it is not going to bring any satisfaction. It'll damage relationships. And if you're, again, a parent, I think we feel this acutely. It is easy for us to get angry and domineer somebody that is a lot smaller than us, that doesn't have any strength on their own, that doesn't have a lot of power or authority. And how many times have you done that with your kid and then felt terrible afterwards? They're crying, you're crying. You need something to repair the gap, the bridge, the break in the relationship. We're going to dwell on this last one longer, nostalgia. Look at verse 10. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. There are two things that are dangerous about nostalgia. First, 
we are desiring our former days, former days in our mind that are inevitably um, downplaying or ignorant of previous evil. And I just saw this uh, from this week, the story out of Canada. So back in Canada in the late 19th century, up until 1996, there were schools set up throughout Canada that would um, take indigenous and Native American children in Canada by force from their families so that they could be assimilated into Canadian culture, that they would learn their values, English, other, all sorts of other things, but it was taken by force. It did a ton of harm to the Canadian community. Uh, as part of the reconciliation process between the government and these communities of indigenous peoples, they have made efforts to follow up with how deep was the harm. One of the things that came out was lots of children were taken and not all of those children were ever sent back home. In their investigation, and this came out just this week, of one of these schools in British Columbia, they discovered a mass grave with remains of 215 children. Collectively, these schools had been responsible for the death of over 4,000 indigenous children from the 1890s till the 1970s. Nostalgia escapes from the evil and wickedness of previous generations. But the second danger is also an escape. We are denying God's presence in the present. Think about the statement that, I didn't know any other way of saying this, so, that the world is going to hell in a handbasket, that, that things are getting progressively worse, that everything, nothing is like what it used to be. In my day, there was this and that. Everything's just awful now. We are denying that God is sovereignly at work here and now. And more importantly, we're shirking our responsibility that God has placed us in this age to live. God did not make mistakes when all of you were born in the early, you know, in the 21st century, or for me, in the 20th century, a whole millennia ago. God did not make mistakes. You are born here for a reason. And that means we have a responsibility for here and now. So if the world is really so terrible, as it most certainly is, the question is not, let me long for previous days. You know, that, that would make it better. If it was just like it was back in the good old day, it's, all right, it is bad. How can wisdom help me navigate it? How can wisdom help me maybe make it a little bit better? You can think about it uh, this way from Lord of the Rings with Frodo being so distraught with his responsibility of being the ring bearer and he doesn't want to live and do this thing during such dark times and the wise Gandalf responds so do all who live to see such times but that is not for them to decide all we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us that's now nostalgia isn't much help when we're dealing with issues here and now, and it's denying the wickedness of previous generations. So we're not called to escape this world, but to engage it with wisdom, accepting where and when God has placed us and taking responsibility for it. But there are still dangers that come with this. And we'll move through this fast, because this is a lot again. The preacher presents two dangers to the wise, and we can see them in verses 15 through 17. And basically they are this. The wise can become incredibly self-righteous, right? I am superior to everyone if I just do all the right things, if I go to all the right Bible studies, give all my money to the right people, then God owes me to make me better, to owes me a better life or something more pleasant 
I can actually twist God's arm to meet my will or desires because I'm so pious. There's this other one, though, that we can actually just delve into wickedness, that this wisdom can draw us to despair, and so we just are going to sin. And that's what verses 20 through 22 actually remind us of, that, that wisdom alone can't actually stop us from sinning, right? Seven, uh, verse, chapter 7, verse 20 kind of echoes or makes us think about Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's why he says, there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Wisdom is good to live a good life, to, to wisely in God's creation, but it can't undo the effects of the fall. And that's what he comes crashing towards in these final <coughs> verses. The preacher has explored all the problems of human life. He's shown how wisdom can help us live a good life, and it is an improper response to God's sovereignty. But what he discovers is that wisdom cannot answer ultimate questions, particularly about death. Look at the language of his search in verses 25. He says, I wanted to know, I searched, I seek wisdom. I want to know about wickedness, folly. I want to know about the foolishness that is madness. His search is intellectual and in-depth, and he finds certain things. He finds the dangers of, I want to be careful here, of a particular kind of woman. Right? That's what verse 26 says. I find something more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets. He's not a misogynist. This is not a blanket statement for all uh, women. He just finds a particular type of woman. But Derek Kidner, again, wisely throws this out. He makes an interesting observation about the preacher's search because he makes this intense search of, of wisdom, and he talks about a woman, uh, and, you know, these, uh, he searched for thousands of men and thousands of women, and he finds, you know, just one man that is wise, but he doesn't find any women. And Derek Hidner said, his fruitless search for a woman he could trust may tell us as much about him and his approach as about any of his acquaintances. He might have done better to have cast his net less widely than among a thousand. Maybe the preacher was just fussy. Maybe the preacher was, you know, just tells us a lot more about his character maybe or his, what he was looking for than the, con the character of the women he finds. But it's possible that he, you know, he's not a misogynist or saying that all women are like this because he also praises marital fidelity in just two more chapters. But there is a danger of relationships in ensnaring one another. Paul warns us against being unequally yoked. There is uh, a danger in a lack of wisdom among all sexes. The point is that men and women, we both don't think all the time. We both lack wisdom. We both will hurt uh, one or the other. So all these warnings show us that there is a limitation to our wisdom. And that's what he was saying at verses 23 and 24. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it is far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it? So we arrive at the concluding verse of all of his searching and are forced to ask with him, what is of ultimate importance? That was the second. Can I live, can wisdom help in this life? It can. It's not going to you know, prevent you from sinning, but it will help you live well or live good in this life. The second question is, what's ultimately important? In the second part of uh, chapter 6, verse 12, he says, Who can tell a man what will be after him under the sun? And then here, in verse 29 of chapter 7, he says, See, this alone I found, 
that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. He concludes with an ultimate truth about humanity. Human nature itself is responsible for the lack of wisdom in the world. And he looks back all the way to creation and recalls that humanity was created in the image of God. Look at where we started, the preacher exclaims. We reflected the image of God and lived in his beautiful creation. To appreciate the importance of this biblical worldview, Kidner makes an important observation that gets picked up by a bunch of different commentators. From the ancient Near East, there's a Babylonian theodicy. It was their explanation for why is the world the way it is? Because even other people and other cultures and religions recognize the world's got issues of injustice and sin and people hurting one another. So what's wrong with it? Well, the Babylonians, who are contemporaries with ancient Israel, said that the gods are the ones responsible for the wickedness of men. It says that they put in humanity lies and not truth, and that humanity was endowed with that forever. In that theology, humanity was set up to fail. Worse, we were made wicked. Our faith then, according to that worldview, is to sin, fail, and despair. And the Bible presents a very different picture from the Babylonian theodicy. Humanity was created in the image of God, which means we had truth in us at creation. So how did everything go so wrong? Again, in Genesis, we sinned. God made man upright. Genesis 1.27, we are created in the image of God, but they have sought out many schemes. That's Genesis 3, verses 6 through 7. The woman saw the fruit of the tree, that it was good, and ate it. And she gave some to her husband who was next to her. All of the calamities, the longings, the frustrated desires, the tears, the selfishness, everything that we need wisdom for and everything that we do that we lack wisdom for is not, or is our fault, but it is not our fate. That's the biblical worldview. All of the things wrong in the world, as G.K. Chesterton said, is because of me. I'm the problem with the world. So if I want to know what's wrong with me, I look in a mirror. Why did this, this, and this happen? Probably because I had some contributing factor with it because of either lack of wisdom or because of my own sin. But that too can be a mercy. And that is what he concludes with here. It's still filled with hope. In his day, as the Babylonian theodicy showed us, my life was part of something meaningless because the gods created me with lies. So what else could I do but despair? But the Bible says all of our moral issues that corrupt us and make us act like fools and not wise are my fault, but not my fate. Kidner said, since futility was not the first word about our world, it is no longer has to be the last. I'll conclude with this. Herbert, uh, I'm going to butcher his last name. Herbert Fingeret was a philosophy professor at the University of California, Santa Barbara. In his 1996 book on death, he wrote that when you die, this is a quote, there is nothing. The fact that there is nothing shouldn't bother us. That was written in 1996, but years later in 2018, he was 97 years old and about to die. His grandson was making a documentary about his final days, trying to capture the inevitability of death. 
and the two are very close, and they made this hauntingly short film, but The Atlantic was writing about it, and they said that Herbert says something in the film, and they reported again, that captures the wisdom of asking about ultimate things before we come to the brink of meeting the ultimate. He said in the documentary, it haunts me, the idea of dying soon. He's 97 years old. It haunts me, the idea of dying soon. Whether there's a good reason for that or not, I walk around often and ask myself, what is the point of it all? There must be something I'm missing. I wish I knew. He could have known. Maybe he did know at some point. Maybe in all of his wisdom, I mean, he was a professor of philosophy at the university you know, in Santa Barbara. I'm sure he's a very wise man, but there was no wisdom to help him ponder his death rightly. That at some point, you know, in 1996, I mean, he was much younger. He just could embrace the fact that there was going to be nothingness, and that was good for him. When he's at death's door, all of a sudden he realizes the teacher of death is telling him, that's not enough. There's something that's going to happen to you after you die. The preacher says, who can tell a man what comes after him? Jesus tells us what comes after. Jesus tells us what comes next. There is no one whose death, if death is an evangelist, that teaches more about our own death, whose life teaches us more about living a good life. Uh, Jesus' death teaches us about the depth of our sin and the depth of God's love for us. It's his resurrection that teaches us that if we are united to him, then what is true for him is true for us, that death is not our end. That is something, you know, when, he's, when Herbert was saying, I, what's the point of all? There must be something I'm missing. It's the resurrection. It's, it's hope that he's missing. And this is what the Bible says that rounds out a good, wise life that leads us to ponder ultimate things. This is what comes after for everyone, the person who confesses faith in Jesus Christ and the person who doesn't. Revelation 20, 11 through 15 says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. There is something that comes after death. There's something that we have to ponder, all of us, as the word of God is preached, as missionaries go out, as you live your lives and come across those that don't have that hope, that wonder and ponder about the evils of our day. You have a responsibility to then preach and share a good news about what comes next and challenge people to ponder that. Wisdom says you are all going to die. What comes next? Let's pray.